0: Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: Hello and welcome to the 2020 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We're thrilled to have you all here my name is Ike Zhang, and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan, and I'm very happy to introduce our next panel, Threes and Frees, The Evolving Nature of Basketball. We have an incredible slate of speakers today, and I'll introduce you to them one by one. First, we have Danilo Gattonari, who is the forward for the Oklahoma City Thunder. <laughs> next, we have Kirk Goldsberry, Goldsberry, who is the MBA analyst for ESPN. Next, we have R.C. Buford, CEO of San Antonio Spurs Entertainment. Next, we have Dave Yeager, who is the former coach of the Memphis Grizzlies and the Sacramento Kings. And finally, we have Sue Bird, who is an all-star point guard for the Seattle Storm. And our panel will be moderated by Jay Dande, who is the Director of Sports Journalism at Northwestern University. The entire panel will be 45 minutes with 10 minutes additionally at the end for questions and answers. If you have any questions, feel free to submit them through Twitter using our hashtag Evolving Game. Uh, all the questions that I will have the most mentions will be submitted to the moderator to be answered by the speakers. And without further ado, I'm gonna hand it over to J.A.
2: Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for coming out. And Thanks for our, our panelists for being here. I'm really excited to have this discussion with this great group on stage with me. Um, I don't wanna to spend too much time talking about Three Pointers. I think it's pretty well established, uh, the role that they play in today's MBA. But I would like to uh, give a graphic representation uh, since that's what Kirk Goldsberry does. And if we can have the first slide, please. Uh, Kirk has a great quick demonstration of what the game was then and what it looks like today. Um, so, Kirk, if you want to explain this graphic and You know,
3: it's somewhat self-evident, but if you could just give us a little details on it. When I first made this graphic, I just said, holy shit. You know, I didn't know it was was gonna come out when I made it. Um, But, you know, I've been studying shooting data since I made my debut at the Sloan Conference in 2012. And since that time, these trends have just increased. Um, And fortunately, we have data going back about two or three decades to look at, you know, when the San Antonio Spurs were winning their first title, all the way up to when the Raptors are winning their first title. And the game has changed so much. And one of the ways, and you hit on that, it's manifested. And just one of them is where shots are coming from. Um, but just seeing the... I think the most striking part of that graphic is the death of the baseline jumper, um, which can be traced to this, the decline of post-play, um, the death of the elbow jumper to a degree. Um, it, it's, it's pretty striking. And, 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 and the last thing I'd say, J.A., is like... We're in the middle of the transition. This is the, the, We're not at equilibrium by any means. And what I'm interested to hear the group talk about today is like, you know, from your careers changing from the player side to your coaching um, styles and to your, to your personnel and, and front office strategies, all of these things. Basketball is a moving target right now. And I think shot selection is just part of it, but it's a very easy sort of symptom to track.
2: And we'll, we'll get to everybody, and I'm just as anxious to, to hear their thoughts. Uh, stick with you for one moment because you believe the future of the nba is bright i know this because in your most recent column you wrote the future of the nba is bright i still have my journalistic tops <laughs> by the way what makes you so optimistic and and what do you like about where the game is headed
3: uh, i think the nba is is one of my favorite things in the world i think uh the WNBA is in fantastic shape with people like sue and Uh, I love watching the sport, and I think some of the best players are our youngest players. Um, The globalization of the sport has brought us so many different, unique players from parts of the world that weren't part of this conversation when I was a kid, and it's really cool. Uh, And I love watching basketball as much as anyone, and part of that is watching these incredible trends. And I think that the future is bright in terms of personnel. Um, and if I'm, I'm uh, you know, I want to move the three point line, okay, people? Um, I, I just want to do that to keep basketball uh, as fun as it can be.
2: So I'll open up that question to everyone. Um, won't just limit to the NBA, the, the future of basketball, do you believe it's bright? And if so, w- what has you optimistic about the game's future? We'll start with you, Danilo. Uh,
4: well, first of all, I'm glad that I'm playing in 2020 and not <laughs> back then. That's future that, that, I, you, that, that yeah, shot charts chart. I, I, I see that, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, he's evolving. Uh, even if I compare when I came into the league in 08 and what it is right now, is definitely evolving. I was back then playing for a coach with Mike D'Antoni that was already playing the game that we are playing nowadays. Uh, and so he uh, was trying to already evolve the situation. And uh, he's just amazing. And he's amazing to see this chart. It just amazed me that I'm one of the
5: players now. RC? I think the talent of the league is, is continuing to grow in both leagues. And I think um development is happening at such a fast rate in in at such advanced stages uh, much earlier than we used to see it um so i think we have that potential i a concern i have is that it becomes too homogenized and that everything becomes the same and i think the diversity of our game has been a big a big uh it's what's made it great and i think i hope we can continue to to maintain that.
0: I, I agree with you you know as far as basketball is the most beautiful sport to me we can play by yourself, you can play one-on-one, you can play two-on-two, you can play with bigs, you can play small, you can play fast, you used to be play able to deliver <laughs> Right and so that. It, and <laughs> that is a concern about the different kinds of skills that are coming to the game now. Uh, I agree guys are coming in more skilled at a younger age uh, but we don't want them to be all the same and that's part of the beauty of our game.
6: Yeah, I mean, the key word is evolution. I think from a WNBA perspective that what I've seen in my career is even just, we started when I first got in the league and it was still the, well, I guess it's now the high school three-point line. I was going to call it the college. Um, And then we like have gradually moved it back. And at first I think for me, when it finally got to what it is now, the international line, it was like, this is too far. What are we doing? And it just, it always made me thought like, is this for, are we trying to play the game of basketball the way we all kind of know it? Is this for entertainment? Like, what, what, and it's this balancing act, and that's what I think probably both the NBA and the WNBA are dealing with right now, but then you speak to the young players, and, you know, obviously Sabrina Ionescu is, like, captivating the world right now, breaking triple-double records for women's basketball. That's amazing when you think about it. So I guess it's going in the right direction in in that regard, Um, but there's obviously a lot of question marks.
2: We'll circle back to the point that RC brought up, um, the big man, and what do you see, is there a future for, for the bigs or for the center position, um, the way things are going? As, as you see that shot chart and you see roster construction, I'm sure everyone here has been well aware of the way the, the Houston Rockets are constructed right now with, with no centers on the roster really, no classic centers at least. Uh, does that concern you, RC?
5: Does it concern me? I think it, we have such a great legacy of big, big men in the NBA. Um, just in my lifetime, from 1960 to, 19, to 2005, 30 of the 45 MVPs of the league were post players. And since 2005, there haven't been any. And I think that, the pendulum has swung so far away from that that I hope we don't lose the impact and the beauty of uh, of a diverse Actually,
2: field of play. if we can get uh, the slides up, uh- It'll be a little bit out of order, we can get to it. Kirk has a chart for that as well. Um, there it is. Um,
3: Kirk, if you can explain the different Jerry well, West this, logos. Yeah. In this. So this is that Jerry West silhouette, the famous NBA logo, and uh, the bigger logos are centers, uh, and the smaller logos are point guards. Um, and as you can see, each row is a different decade. In the, I think it's in the 19 years before the three-point line, 18 of the 19 MVPs were centers. Uh, and in the last 19 years, we haven't had one center. Uh, be a uh, an MVP and one of the things that I think is funny is like they're called centers for a reason and they don't even play in the center of the court very much on offense anymore so uh, the, the, it, the whole game is, is changed towards the three-point shot and that's interesting my personal position J.A. about this is that basketball is awesome because there's five position groups that have organically emerged over time and I love when all five of those groups can be sort of represented in the MVP conversation or in um, playoff games and in in strategies. And one way to look at it is, trends are sort of taking away or threatening one or two of those in the NBA at least. Uh, And and maybe that should alarm some people. Um, I'm not sure that the game was better when centers were dominating and we had to add the shot clock and George Mikan was dominating or Kareem was. I'm not saying that at all. But I think if you look at the diversity of the five position groups, it's awesome. And to see one of those groups, I don't care which one, sort of being phased out a little bit, it's alarming to me. I mean, here's Danilo, six <laughs> foot 10, very much alive, not extinct,
2: right? Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. you finished as high as second in the league in three point attempts. So you don't feel as if your position is being threatened. Um, so is it up to everyone else to adapt like you? Uh, I mean, the, four,
4: the, four, the three and four position, that's what I've been playing, is, uh, I think has been pretty similar uh, for the past uh, since, since when I got into the league. Um, but I always say, in my case, it's great because I just—I just, I don't have to run like a center. I just go from three-point line to three-point line, and I just shoot, <laughs> and I get one more point. And so, to me, it's a great philosophy. So, honestly, uh, uh, selfishly, I'll keep going that way.
5: But I think our, we started development at, at, a, at such a young age, we're, we're not developing players in the same aspects as we were at, at a young age. And I think that is going to continue to not only uh, eliminate some of the diversity of the game, but, but uh, you know, developing the next generation players in a way that takes us away from diversity.
2: So is something missing from the game if we're not working on post-up play, back to the basket, or, or would you rather play this style now?
6: Um, so interestingly enough, <laughs> I'm not really worried about the big... This is more of a WNBA perspective. I'll own that. I'm not really worried about big players. In women's basketball, if you're tall, you dominate. It doesn't matter. There's, there's no... The athletic ability doesn't... You're just going to dominate. Brittany Griner is a great example. I'm, like, really worried about the little people. <laughs> really? Because I feel like once you have if we talk NBA terms, once a Giannis starts playing like a Steph Curry, we're all screwed. (laughs) All these little people are screwed. And it's kind of trending to that. You talk about development in this way where I wonder, all right, and I'll be dramatic with my examples to make them, it's like if Shaquille O'Neal, so Shaquille O'Neal obviously became a center for obvious reasons. What if he's now gonna try and play like Kevin Durant? You know, and what if that's where the development is going? It seems like it is. And that's where I worry about the shorter players to be honest, in my world anyways.
2: I will say this, so... You'll have to we, retire before you I know, right? I'm out. <laughs> she's not going anywhere. Before she, she get, she's 50. getting ready to play her 19 seasons. She's not trying to retire. Uh, let's get yeah. up for that. <laughs> um, so Danilo's finished in the top five in field goal attempts, three-point attempts, I should say. Kevin Durant has as well. Um, Ryan Anderson, six foot nine, has what Rashard Lewis has, has done as well. But if you look today, it's all shorter guys. So in the NBA, at least, the guards are claiming quick. that, quick. that, that, that part of the territory, so I wouldn't worry yet. I don't think they're going to they're force you out just yet. Um, Dave, before we move on, did, did you want to address? No, this? the guys
0: just there's more multi-position players, multi-skilled. They're growing up at a younger age, doing more things than just being a point guard or a big. And uh, I think that's that's positive for sure. Um, one last general thought
2: I'd like to throw out to the panel. We'll get to some specific questions. Uh, the great Earl Monroe once told, uh, unfortunately now the late Ralph Wiley, he described basketball as saying, the game is about advancing the ball to the basket. The game is about the shortest distance between two points. And I really held on to that as my view of basketball for a long time. And I'm wondering, does that still hold true? As we've talked about how the geometry has changed, for example. Is that core element of the game still the same? Is that the basic mission when you're on the court?
6: So this is where I'm going to kind of bring in that whole entertainment piece again, because with that, when I read that, what I think is you want to make the right play at the right time to win the game. And I've definitely built my career on that, so I, I, I mean, that still holds very, very much true to me. Um, but then you think about rule changes and things of that nature, and it, it seems like it's usually to make the game better for entertainment purposes. So there's more scoring or whatever the case may be. So I struggle with that because like what's the balance when is it if it becomes too much about entertainment and we kind of just change all the rules Then that will go out the door and it'll just be about who can break who down or who can do that um, Then at the end of the day, though It's like we're all sitting here. We've played on teams We're we're in teams like you're trying to win <laughs> so Like at the end of the day, you still need to win the game no matter how entertaining you know You got to win think ugly, that's too. still the
2: path to victory you No, know, so, so I, I think the do, yeah. way he meant it. I think was more of a traditional you get the ball inside to, to the center or you know, Earl Monroe would back people down, or spin around them. Um, you know, Oscar Robinson would back people down. And now getting from point A to point B, I would say it could be like a Russell Westbrook, for example, and that's a very exciting, dramatic way to do it. So it might be a similar
0: goal, but I'm, I'm just wondering if if the method it's are it's the same goal. It's just now that it's it's a facing the rim attack versus the spin and the back down and those kinds of things. And To to keep working with the rules and how does the game look like in five years, you know, on Wednesday I poke my head into the YMCA and watch. you know, two 12-year-olds are playing a three-on-three game and the kid gets to eight feet and he drills this kid, (laughs) just knocks him back, and he shoots it. And and is that a foul or is it not? But if we played in the driveway, I would either, we're going to shoot for it or we're going to fight, but you're not getting that one, you know what I mean? And so I don't like seeing that stuff going down to our, you know, our youth levels. I see. I think
5: the game's prettiest when the ball moves, when the people move, and the and the, and the court is spaced and
2: spread. More and, side to side.
5: Yeah, you change sides with the ball, people move, um, and you you find you let the ball find the best shot. So, I'm not a big believer in just giving it to one person, and you know, I I'd like I like to see the ball move.
2: If you want to see an example of that, there's a YouTube clip. uh, I think it's called The Beautiful Game with the Spurs with with their last championship in 2014. And there's just a sequence of the ball flying around from player to player. Um, That that was certainly a beautiful style that they played in that championship.
3: Kirk, I love that quote, Jay. So uh, thanks for bringing it to us. I think another quote that that echoes in my head, uh, nobody changed more rules in the sport of basketball than George Mikan, either as a player or as a commissioner. And George Mikan... Without him, we wouldn't have goaltending. Gallo would be able to block shots that are on their way down. Uh, We wouldn't have the shot clock. We wouldn't have a wider key. And most notably, uh, the three-point line, which he adopted as commissioner of the ABA uh, in the 70s. And ironically, he sort of signed the death letter for the, the big man, at least as it was currently being known then um but when he adopted the three-point line in the aba he said i need to give the smaller guys a chance so to sue's point um the the nba had a problem and the ball wasn't moving uh it was it was it was boring to a degree and the the aba successfully opened up the game uh, and opened up the center of the board uh, with this three-point stipend that gallo loves to 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 exploit Um, but as rc pointed out The question I'm asking myself, has that pendulum swung so far that in Mike's legacy is a time to say, give the big man a chance at this stage of the game? As we watch Roy Hibbert and Al Jefferson exit the league, um, as we watch Clint Capella get traded. We could get better examples than those (laughs) two. Well, those guys, (laughs) (laughs) hey, no disrespect. No disrespect, but. He's all NBA, he's out of the league. Roy Hibbert was a member of a major team in the last decade, is out of the league uh prematurely in my opinion so those why you chose those examples but regardless darcy's earlier point even though he makes fun of me uh the pendulum arguably swung so far this way that at least in the nba so that, that you could argue uh that, that, that the bigger players like gallo needs a chance but he seems to be doing just fine
4: i appreciate that <laughs> um, but yeah i think that uh, you know the what rc said about moving the ball and going side to side i think that that's something that every player we love to play with, and that's a system that, you know, that's why the Spurs are the Spurs, and that's why they've been winning, all the champions that have been winning, and they've been a model for everybody. And I think that, you know, going uh, as, as a player, if you play in a system like that, it's better for everybody, and it makes everybody happy. And that's the best way, the best path for
2: winning. That's what I think. Um, I'll take it back because we've been focusing on the offense right now. Um, I'd say the offense has it pretty good, especially in the NBA. The way the rules are set up, um, you've you've seen what scoring looks like these days. It seems like every night somebody's hitting 130. Um, If we rewind a little bit, if we go back to 2015, um, Coach Ager's Memphis Grizzlies were taking on the Warriors. This is the Warriors. As it turned out, they were on their way to winning their first championship in this run, but people forget how close that run came to ending in the second round of the 2015 playoffs. you had a 2-1 lead, in your victories, you held them to 90 and to 89 points. And I'm wondering, how did you do that defensively against, against all that firepower? And is there a way that the defense can catch up to today's offenses?
0: Uh, the first answer is uh, we had Tony Allen in his prime as a defender, who I think is probably the best on-ball defender in the last 10 years with Kawhi Leonard as well, uh, and a young Clay Thompson. And just as a matchup. Tony kind of nullified what Clay. we knew Clay wasn't going to get 30 or 35. So that was like one of the holes in the bucket. We got a a finger in there. And so then we could more focus on uh, Steph Curry and and do some of those things. And Tony pulled a hamstring there in in game four and Clay gets loose and then Steph gets going. And all of a sudden, you know, we play very, very slow, as you mentioned. And to play against a team that played really fast and play from behind, that's a struggle. We always had to kind of stay ahead of them and grind them down. So uh, to answer your second question, as far as... There's times where to be able to guard the new NBA, you need to be deliberate offensively and to place more emphasis on every shot that they take. That is, there are, I think, bad shots are being not as many anymore. They're not questioned as many. It's a little bit more free-flowing, uh, guys get them up. Let's, we gotta get X number of threes up per game. So to make those each shot a little bit more critical and important, we got to bury you in the post, we got to get to the rim, we got to get two guys to guard us in the paint and try to slow that down. And and that's not happening as much in the league. That's one thing, and Dave and I were talking about this earlier, I'll I'll ask the
2: the two players on the panel. Is there a defense for a quote unquote bad shot? If somebody wants to come down and pull up from from 30 feet, is there a way you can stop that defensively?
4: Uh, I mean, if if that guy taking that shot is Steph, it's not a bad shot. Mm -hmm. But if most of the guys taking that shot, I think it's a bad shot. Um, but to stop to stop that is is tough uh, but I think going back to that series that I remember very well uh, it was it was uh, it was amazing to see those kind of two plays you know uh, going at each other and in uh, and you couldn't decide you know it's better to do that or to do the yeah, or go slow It's better to play the half-core play like Golden State you know is is tough but to see if a best shot is a best shot or
2: a good shot it depends who the player is I think we, we see so many are adept, you know, it's not just Steph anymore. Trey Young or Damian Lillard can hit these shots. And I'm sure as you drive by the playground, you see kids you know, shooting from <laughs> the parking lot, basically. Um, so how can the defenses stop that if this is the way the game's going? <laughs>
6: I feel like I'd have a job if I had the answer to answer this question. Um, I mean, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, I don't want to get in like the nitty gritty of it all, but you just have to like, force it into the long two. That's where we live right now. I mean, for me as a player, I actually love it because I'm a mid-range shooter. I've said this, so It says like, for me, I'm like, okay, great, thanks. I know that's, like, not the, like, best shot per they're, they're point, blah blah, 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 but
5: um, <laughs> I'm taking it, you know? better be careful here, Sue. This is I a know, tough crowd. I know, I know,
6: I have said it before, though. Um, but, yeah, it's tough. I mean, there's ways, I think, certainly in the pick and roll, it's probably one of the more difficult things to guard always. Um, you got to get tricky with it.
2: I have some numbers to, to back you up, Sue. Um, you know, since... I'm like, didn't they State like
6: win, win with the mid-range?
2: Exactly. So here's, here's the numbers to back mid-range. that up. So in 2016, they took um, 1,397 mid-range shots. Um, in 2018, when they were considered a better team with the addition of, uh, of Kevin Durant, they took 1,649 mid-range shots. So they increased the number of mid-range shots as they were becoming a better team, as they were more potent offense with the addition of Kevin Durant. So keep shooting those mid-range shots. Too. Um, we'll, we'll stay with you and um, kind of look at this moment that women's basketball is having. It, it was really apparent one of the themes of the Kobe Bryant Memorial was this, this great showcase for women's basketball. You know, the, the earliest speakers among them were Diana Taurasi, Sabrina Inescu and Gino Oriyama, coach of UConn Women's Team, your former coach. And um, to have those, those players and that coach on that stage, the stage where Shaq and Michael Jordan were and where the focus of um, the basketball world was that day, what did that mean for the sport and where can you take it from there?
6: Um, well, I think we're definitely in a, in a moment for women's basketball for a lot of reasons. And one being the, the impact that Kobe had on our, on our world. Um, I think you know, he, he truly was obviously investing in his daughter in that way, but also investing in women's basketball. And what you saw was Diana, who was impacted by Kobe um, as a fan. But then you saw Sabrina, who was impacted by Kobe um, as like a mentor or mentee situation. And then obviously you had Coach Ariyama who got to speak in a different way because he, he, he was speaking from like a father. And I say this all, I say all this to say like women's basketball has so many, I don't know, there's just, we have a lot of different people, a lot of different groups of people um, and we represent the world in a lot of ways. And this moment, I mean, we've been waiting for it. We've been sitting here waiting for it and, you know, sadly, with Kobe's passing, it, it did shine a light on it um, because he felt so passionately about it. And that, along with, you know, a lot of different things, now's the time. And I think we all recognize that. We just signed a new CBA. There's there's just a lot happening. And, like I said, we've been waiting for it, and now we're going to hopefully pounce on it.
2: With that CBA, would you say the future is more tied to the economics and the finances? Is that what we're looking at? You know, in the NBA, we're kind of a quest for – the future of the the sport on the court. Um, right. it, it, it feels like the economics of the WNBA are, are really where the focus is right now.
6: Yeah, I think as far as the on-court goes, um, we're 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 holding up our end of the bargain. You know, um, twelve teams, twelve roster spots. Do the math. It's like crazy survival of the fittest out there. So you're just going to have the best players every year on the court. You're going to have great teams because of that. And so that's doing that's doing well. Um, maybe when we do get the economics in place, we can have <coughs> panel here solely about how the WNBA needs to shoot more threes. We'll see. <laughs> but um, yeah, the economics. We'll Find it for the mid range. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, the economics is obviously crucial, you know, and it's really about um, investing in in our league, and women, um, and not just this. It's something about when you invest in. It seems when you invest in male sports, it's um, people stick around even when it fails or even if it doesn't do well at first. And there's been something about women's sports where it's like, here's your money, oh, it didn't work, we're taking that back, by, And you have to stick with it. Um, that plus you know, being more creative in our marketing. You know, The NBA has been such a great big brother to us, but in some ways it's held us back. That's just the reality. Um, we're not them. Oh, oh. Well, we just, like, copied their CBA, literally copy-pasted it, and it didn't, it didn't fit for our lives. It didn't fit for what we were trying to accomplish, so we've had to restructure that. Um, like, even when I read, actually, that Steve Kerr, so we got our own rooms on the road this year, which was, like, a big win. Yeah, and Steve Kerr was like, oh, yeah, I remember that when, when we finally got that in the NBA. And I just remember thinking, like, not, I didn't remember thinking, oh, wow, the NBA ever had a room together? Obviously, at some point, I knew they had to grow as well, but I was like, oh, my God, we literally copy and pasted everything they did. And that's how it's been in marketing and everything. So, economics, it's not just about money, it's about doing what's right for women's basketball as well.
2: Um, We we talked about Kobe, let's stay with him for a moment and if we can have the the slides up again for for a final set of slides. Um, I'm wondering, and and Kirk, if you can explain this, the, the Kobe, looked a lot more like Michael, though you can see the evolution. So these are the shot charts, career shots of, of Michael Jordan versus Kobe Bryant. And I'll go back and forth real quick. Mike
5: couldn't play today.
2: <laughs> but don't you think he would, he would just take more three-pointers? So Kobe represented, you know, a lot of that looks like Mike with the addition of the three-pointers. And then you look at uh, the two most recent MVPs and what their shot chart looks like. Um, Kirk, can you, you take us through these charts and, and describe how we've gone from Michael to Kobe to what we're seeing today. Yeah,
3: so I'll try to be objective, but I love mid-range shooting. I think it's the most beautiful part of the sport. I'm biased, but I love Dirk or Chris Paul or uh, Michael. Growing up watching Michael just destroy people in the post with footwork and then fadeaways. And it's just, it's sad for me to see that today's superstars aren't really doing that. Um, And again, I keep coming back to the word that RC used earlier, which is diversity. The league is at its best when some of our players are living and thriving from 25 feet and hitting three after three, and some are like Giannis dunking all over people in the restricted area. But it's sad to me that that one-legged fadeaway that Dirk made famous, the LeBron has adopted, unquestionably is sort of an endangered species. I'm not going to say it's extinct. Um, but you know when you look at those charts, to me, when I lament the, the loss of the mid-range, people roll their eyes in general. Uh, until you say, Kobe or Michael or Dirk or Tim off the glass, uh, then, it, then it makes a different point. Uh, certainly Sue Bird, like if I told you that if you close your eyes and picture Dirk or, or Kobe or Michael shooting, you're probably watching a shot type that is frowned upon in today's MBA, analytically or not, I don't think that's cool. Um, you know, I, I, I love Daryl and I love what they're doing in Houston. I support it from a reasoning point of view, but from an aesthetic point of view. Um, look, I think the MBA is both an entertainment product and an educational device. And I think depending on which frame you're sort of looking through, how you approach this conversation, J.A., is very different. Um, Fans love offense, fans love points. I get it. Like We gotta get the Nielsen ratings up. Um, but as RC alluded to earlier, there's a young kid in Italy learning to play the game and they're learning from the be like Mike sort of focus or be like Steph. And, and we're engineering that educational device as well. And when we talk about the future of the league, I think connecting the top of the pyramid to the base of the pyramid is, is, is super important and a responsibility that all pro players have and coaches and executives, and certainly league executives too. Gallo,
2: what was, if any, was Kobe's influence on you? He's a guy who came up in Italy. Like,
4: yeah, I mean, um, I was, um, yeah, it was uh, talking about Kobe, you know, it was, um, he's, he's, it was great. Uh, I mean, amazing story uh, that I had growing up because he grew up in Italy, and every time I saw him, we were speaking Italian, and he had such a great relationship with Italy, with my country. And with me, too, because my f- rookie year, uh, you know, I was, I was on the phone with him and we were talking. So it was just an uh, amazing experience that gives, still gives me uh, goosebumps. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I think that um, st- the stats-wise, the, the mid-range, and I play in a team like, OKC okay, Thunder. under, we, we shoot a lot of mid-range shots and we are winning and we have a good record and we're having fun with that and we are okay with that and we want to take those shots. For example, talking about my team, and we're going to keep doing that. And so, um, you know, like, like we said before, the, the diversification of the, every team, I think is
2: the beauty of the NBA. Mm-hmm. Where do you see his influence in the game now and going forward? What do, do you think the legacy of Kobe will be on this league? Um, I think that the, the most
4: important thing that, that I think when I think about Kobe's is mentality. So when we talk about the Mamba mentality, that's something that um, every kid should, should learn and everything should think about and everything should do once he gets on the court for that practice, that game, uh, the way to approach that practice, that day, that game, That's that's the
2: Mamba mentality. R.C., you were at the Memorial along with Coach Greg Popovich, Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, uh, Tony Parker, all the, all the rivals that we saw in those great playoff series, Spurs versus Lakers. Why was it so important for you guys to be there? And I'm, I'm just wondering what, what you're thinking. Being back in that building and, and paying tribute to him, what was on your mind that day?
5: So between 99 and 2010, a lot of the, the finals participants in the West came from from those two teams and there was so much respect for Kobe as a player for the Lakers as an organization and for the path that we knew we had to to uh, to, to to the mountain we had to conquer every year you know probably Bruce Bowen was a spur because of Kobe um, and just that the respect that was there it was really important for Manu came back from Argentina to be there um, the other thing I'd say is, hopefully, a great legacy will be f- from that day is, is what people saw of him as a, as a girl dad and what he, you know, how he took his profession and turned it into a real passion of, for fatherhood. That was, that was really inspiring.
2: It's interesting. You, you mentioned Bruce Bowen came, you, you guys got him primarily, you needed somebody to guard Kobe. Um, but he wound up being really one of the pioneering three and D guys. You know, a guy could shoot the corner three, play defense. Um, it's because he wasn't
5: allowed to dribble. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it, it's kind of interesting though that, that one specific need that you had to address wound up creating a new role. Um, and and I'm, I'm just wondering how his, how, how it went from we got to stop Kobe to realizing oh, we could utilize him in this way. And then, Dave, I'm sure you, you had your share of 3 D guys. You know, we saw that really take root around the league. If you guys could talk about how that Bruce Bowen role, who was, who was come there specifically for Kobe, and, and this is how we can get into his legacy kind of indirectly. I, I never realized that he was there specifically for Kobe. But because of that, we had this new style of player that came into the league. How did, how did that role develop? And, and Dave, how, how did you see it come across, play out across the league?
0: Uh, I think you know competition drives the marketplace, and uh, you know you got to keep adding different assets, uh, matchups. As, as I talked about earlier, matchups are a big part of uh, of pro basketball, and uh, I certainly enjoyed uh, the Spurs. I was in the minor leagues, would bring me down there, and they'd be in the playoffs every year and going deep, and I get to run their free agent camps now and then, and I always appreciated being around. But watching the way that you guys went about your business, I got X number of threes up every single day, charted all of these things, and. You know, to be able to watch that from a minor league standpoint, I was I maybe a little naive coming from the minor leagues. I just thought everybody in the NBA does it the way the Spurs do. And I have since seen that that is not, not the case. But they were always on the cusp. I think getting uh, Robert Ory was always big, having the stretch four out there to give Tony Parker space, to give Tim space. i glad you gave Robert yeah. his just due as, as the, the original stretch four. Abso- absolutely. So I think they were always on the front end of that. RC,
2: can you take us a little bit behind the scenes about how
5: I don't know, you know, again, I think competition drives a the market. Um, there, with Bruce, it was just, a, there was a big need, and, and we weren't going to get past the Lakers until we got that, um, at least something that could give us an opportunity. Um, the three-point line was a part of the post game because, it, you know, when teams teams were doubling, Tim Duncan or David Robinson, you had to have four space floor spacers on, on the back side. So um, if Bruce wanted to stay in the game, he had to develop something. He and Brett Brown spent a lot of time in the gym um, getting the three part. He had the D. There was, it was a while. took him a while to get the three. Um, but I think, and then once people saw that that was a path into the league, I think then you saw people developing those skills.
2: This is Bruce told me the story once of how he wound up on Miami's because Miami, I think the Heat lost a game the night before, and the Knicks and the Heat both wanted him. He was on waivers, and because the Heat had lost, they went ahead of the Knicks in, in, the, in the waiver pick, and they picked him up, and they played a style that just suited him and allowed him to, to get the attention of the Spurs um, in the ways that they utilized him, and he says if the Heat hadn't lost that game and hadn't been ahead of the Knicks in the waiver wire, um, Maybe he doesn't go to Miami and then maybe that doesn't lead him to the Spurs where his jersey now hangs in your arena. It wound up being the perfect fit, um, you know, and, and, and so much. You, you'll hear players talk so much about how fit and opportunity um, come come to play such an important part of their careers. Uh, I am wondering, so maybe you might not have something that dramatic, but <laughs> examples of, of fit and opportunities if you can tell. And help us explain and understand how important just something as as simple as the the right situation and the right coach can be.
6: Um, I mean, in a lot of players' cases, it's everything. Um, A player on my team currently, her name's Alicia Clark. She went to, there's literally in the WNBA been like two players currently that went to like mid-majors. It just, you, you usually come from like power five or
2: UConn yeah. or Tennessee.
6: Yeah, you're, you went to a big school. It's just the way it is. Um, but she went to Middle Tennessee State, and she was a post player there. She led, she's like maybe 5'10", 5, 5'11". 5, um, she played the post player, and she actually led D1 in scoring. But she got to the WNBA, San Antonio, matter of fact, and couldn't make a team, couldn't make a team, had to develop her guard skills, did. <coughs> and she is now our version of a 3 and D for sure. So a couple years ago, we were in the finals. She's the one shutting down Diana Taurasi. She's the one guarding Christy Tolliver in the finals. And, and like I said, she added that three-pointer. I only say all this to say, Seattle, for whatever reason, that was the fit. We had the spot for her to be able to, to develop that. We, obviously, the coaches... And um, Jenny Busak matter of fact, saw something in her, and it was that team. She could have been on, there's honestly right now even, like she might go to another team, it might not fit. And people would even tell us like, oh, you'll never win a championship with Alicia Clark as your starting three. And then we did. You know, so it, it's like, seriously, it tells the story for a lot of players' careers.
2: Gallows, as we've seen the increasing European influence on the league, European players, You know, going back to Dirk, up to Luka Doncic, yourself, Um, does it look, does the game look, the NBA game look more like Europe to you? And I'm wondering maybe what the next wave of influence, um, for those of us who aren't as familiar with European basketball, what do you think could be coming next from Europe that we can see influencing the NBA?
4: um well i think that the the process you know the number is going up and it's just the the, the the nba has become more global and global and global and the nba knows i think in all these years they know and the nba knows what's going on in europe way more than back in the days um and so the level the level in europe is going up and and so there are more chances now for players to get, to be known by the NBA and to have a workout and to have the experience to come to the States and, and, and see what's going on. So, uh, there are two worlds that are getting closer and closer and it's not just Europe, it's the whole world. We can see so many international players, it's not about European players anymore. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's the beauty, it's one of the best things
2: about the NBA and it's the beauty of the NBA too. I see, we mentioned Manu and uh, Tony Parker. Those two guys you got with later picks, you know, non-lottery picks, and they became foundational players for you, um, maybe taking advantage of a market inefficiency, right? Maybe not as many people were looking at European players, and you were able to, to scoop them up. Could you get an advantage like that today? As, as Gallo said, there's so much attention. It is such a global game. Um, is it possible for someone to, to sneak by all these scouts that, that a team could grab later in the draft?
5: You know what depends on what later means. Giannis was taken in the middle of the first round and has clearly um, outperformed those expectations. I think there are clearly more people in European or in international gymnasiums than have ever been there. I think the quality of the play, the quality of the coaching, um, has uh, has excelled across the world. Um, I think the NBA academy programming that Adam and the the international group with the NBA now is bringing, is gonna find uh, fruits of, of talent from places that we probably haven't seen before. So I think there are great opportunities both on the male and the female uh, players being developed in places that didn't have structure to, to develop in the past. So I think you're gonna see more international players continue to come just as the level has, uh, has grown. But it's, it's not as inefficient. And I think, again, you have to have, you know, Pop, to, to, to Pop wanted that diversity of thought and diversity of experience, not only for the play, but for the environment and for the, the culture that could be built when you brought together a diverse group of, of people.
2: Yeah, the, the Spurs locker room was such an interesting place, um, especially when you had those guys. And just different thoughts, um, different ideas from all those different cultures. It, it, it was an interesting place. In addition, they, they're pretty good basketball team.
5: Boris Dio never practiced, but he always had his coffee in his locker
2: in yeah, had a locker. coffee machine in the locker room. You guys allowed that? Who, hey. has, who allows an espresso machine in the locker room?
6: We had one in Russia.
2: Yeah?
6: <laughs> it's like a thing. Yeah. Coffee break is like a major part of the day.
4: Coffee, um, we're talking about espresso, not right. American coffee, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah.
6: <There we go. laughs>
2: you a coffee snob, Gallo, is that what you're saying? Okay. <laughs> um, one, one last thing before we get into to your questions. Um, if you look at the Spurs directory, there is a director of innovation, there is a senior director of basketball intelligence, there is a director of research and development, um, a performance informatics scout, um, on and on. <laughs> Jobs that didn't we even exist. We just
5: copied Presti's st- uh, <laughs> staffing guide.
2: Uh, jo- jobs that didn't ex- exist maybe five five or 10 years from now. And, and I think this is something that'll be a particular instance, uh, interest to the attendees here. Um, what are those jobs, A, and wh- wh- where do you, see, do you see even more jobs whose titles we can't even picture now ex- expanding into the future? Opportunities to get in and, and to work in this business. Um, you know, with pathways that that didn't exist before?
5: I can't tell you what the jobs are, but um, what I can say is that we're only gonna continue to get more data sources and more opportunities to learn more about our players, about coaches, about fans, about partnerships, and the better that we we can make efficiencies out of data, the more creative we can be in telling our stories, which I think that's gonna be a big part of how our league grows, the more we can become better partners with the people who are our fans, who support our game, who write about a game and talk about our game, and the more information that we can maximize, I think the better we'll be able to, to take advantages of the opportunities that are available for us.
2: And I think if you can come up with an idea that maybe none of the people on here or, or in your office have, have thought of right there, there'll probably be a place to accommodate that. Right? Yeah. I mean, you're still searching for the next innovation. Um, we'll go to the questions from Twitter. Um, Sounds dangerous, right? <laughs> <laughs> but our audience in here has, has come up with some very good questions. And uh, this first one will go for, for Coach Yeager. Um, how did your coaching change from the grit and grind to the Kings? Um, they are led by Darren Fox, who was very fast paced. Um, just the, the merit support for that. The Grizzlies were as low or as slow as 30th last in the league in, in pace um, when Coach Jager was there, and the Kings, by the time he left, were fifth in the league in pace. So how, how did you make that adjustment?
0: Well, it's always what are our players' strengths and how do we collectively put them together and give them the best chance to be successful? Um, and so when we had a whole bunch of young guys and trying to develop them all at the same time is very difficult, and it, it really struggled with trying to play a way that we could serve that development. And so we prioritized uh, to give De'Aaron Fox as much space as possible. And so we played Nemanja Belizia at, at Power Forward, who ended up to be the eighth best uh, adjusted plus minus. So he, he opened up the court and we got up and down the floor. Uh, Sacramento is just rabid uh, for a winner. And we played a style that was fun to watch, uh, was aggressive, but also competitive drives development. If it's just free minutes, it just doesn't matter. I don't think you develop as quickly as you can in a competitive environment. So we are able to serve all those purposes. And in Memphis, we were better served playing three out, two in, yes, turn four, Zach, turn five, Mark Gasol, right side, left side, power game, running game. And that's that was our strength. And so you talked
2: about the entertainment aspect of it, and, and you alluded to that. But Memphis, that worked because, I, would you say it's because the person I was like, people love that team. It might not have been the most entertaining style, but that team was beloved by that city. Um, what do you attribute that to?
0: Well, they didn't put us on national TV very often.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it might have been loved nationwide, but I, I, I covered yeah. a lot of your games there. Absolutely. And,
0: and uh, you know, in a, in a city that is uh, hardworking, blue-collar, uh, and, and Zach and Tony uh, embodied that, you know, uh, hat mindset and go out there and play with that uh, and Lionel Hollins, he, he got it going. He set the thing up, and, and he was the reason that those guys played the way they did, and, uh, and then I came after that.
2: Another question here, should the four-point shot be
3: incorporated into the NBA? Dalmo? <laughs> Kirk? Going well, I think the three-point shot has done enough uh, <laughs> damage, and, and oh, first of all, doing a great thing to open up the game, but it's, it's reduced the, uh, the, 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 the relevance of the mid-range area enough that a four-point shot would only exaggerate that. So I would say no, unless they put it on the baseline in between the corner three and the low block, and then we'll see who's really good at basketball again. You know. So yeah, put a four-point shot inside the three-point line and I'll listen to it, you know. Kirk has a
5: great idea. Each team gets to decide where their own three-point line is.
3: Hey, everybody clap for that. It's a good idea. People think that's the stupidest thing I've ever written, RC, so yeah. But baseball's great on, because... On their court? Yeah, so within reason every team, whether it's the Seattle Storm or the San Antonio Spurs the beginning of the year would draft a three-point line that's symmetrical and not crazy, but a little different. And By the way, I was very excited when I talked to Bill James earlier today, and he said this was a fun idea because it makes competitors have to adjust to different settings, and that's the point of a sporting event. Uh, and one of the things that captivates us is, as spectators. So. Yeah, I think it would, it, would, it would challenge the shooters to, to be a little less uncomfortable. Um, but to be fair, some people have said that's the dumbest thing I've ever read. Uh, so... It's not. <laughs> <laughs> it hurts, it hurts. Your words, they hurt.
2: Um, Sue so alluded to the, the WNBA three-point line moving. Um, in the NBA, there really hasn't been a change to the court since 1997, 98. That's when the three-point line was moved back out to 23 feet, nine inches. And they also added the, uh, the charge block circle inside. Is there anything that could or should be done to the court that you think we could see in the next few years? Uh,
3: I don't know. You, you guys know, have we know where expectancy. Kirk stands on this. I think, yeah, you guys know what I, it's, it's RC, you got you some are, ideas, come
5: on. Well, the points per shot in the paint right now are at a point where you're not going to develop that game until we improve the points per shot for post players, so. Reducing the size of the lane is another idea of Kirk um, that would has the potential, if, if it's officiated the right way, to improve the points per shot for post players.
2: Dave, is there a change you'd want to see to the court?
0: No, I, I'm, I was thinking uh, league-wise. I, I think NFL got it right in in a couple areas. I'd like to see our best teams play each other more often. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see Milwaukee, Toronto, Boston come over and see you guys five, six times a year against the Clippers, against the Lakers. So I'm, I'm a little random as far as I can't come up with something for the court. Uh, but I think fans want to see the best teams play. and I don't think you need to relegate teams to A2 and A1 and that kind of structure. But I don't know there'd be an unintended consequences for, for that. But I'd like to see the best teams play each other more often. I think our fans would, too.
2: With outside shooting becoming so critical, will we ever
3: see a player like Shaq again, who is so unstoppable down low? You know, we asked Shaq. I did a piece with Jackie McMullen, who's the best, by the way. And Jackie interviewed Shaq, and she said, and he gave us the best quote of all time. He's like, "I am already playing. My name is Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, and if you look at the stats, Giannis is great, the greatest point scorer since Shaq was in his prime." And you covered that team, Jay, in L.A. Um, I just think, and it comes back to stuff that Sue and RC talked about earlier. Is like, you grew up in in two thousand and you're a seven footer, you're still facing the basket. Thanks, Kevin Durant. Like kids now want to face and and play in a way that, you know, when Shaq grew up and partly in San Antonio, he was trained to play with his back to the basket, 10 feet off the rim in one of the blocks, you know? And I I think that's changed, but Giannis is sort of the closest thing we have to Shaq uh, from Shaq himself. And I thought that was a really interesting quote. Shaq's son actually went to my high
2: school, Sharif, uh, Crossroads School, Santa Monica, California. Got to give a shout-out to the Roadrunners. Um, but he, you know, I went, I went to one of their games. I don't think he took a shot inside 20 feet the whole time. And this is Shaq's own son. Um, and so it, it just shows you, I think, the, the, the mindset. Um, you know, uh, Yala, when, when was your growth spurt? And um, did you ever have a low post style or preference?
4: Um, I, when, you know, I, I was always constantly growing up. Uh, I didn't have one year where I grew up like uh, crazy, but um, the coach, I was lucky enough. I think the coaches that coached me always had me uh, at the point guard spot. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why I run nowadays with my my, uh, height, I'm still able to uh, handle the ball the way I do. So uh, that was a great thing that they did. Uh, And I was most of the time, I was the tallest guy. What if they put me under the basket? What if they made me play another way? maybe I wouldn't be here, so uh, I don't know. But uh, in, my, in my career and the way that I grew up, I think that that was something that great that happened to me.
2: Another question. Jay, but,
5: but, go ahead, Arsene. But also internationally, the shot clock, the kids start playing with the shot clock when they're 12 years old. And growing up with a shot clock, everybody on the floor has to be able to make plays because it just comes so quickly. And I think that would be a big addition to the USA basketball is just to get shot clock in high school gyms. It has a great impact on the skill level of players.
2: You played so much international basketball. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything that you'd like to see American basketball incorporate from international? Uh,
6: Very quickly, once I went over there, and again, I played over there for for 10 years, Um, they shoot a lot. And it doesn't matter your position. It's like every, every, we work on something, work on something. All right, break up, get a partner, make 10 threes, 10 this, 10 that. And it's like you're shooting a lot. It's any, you have two practices a day, most times. It's brutal. (laughs) But usually, if you get a nice coach, the morning practice will just be shooting. You're constantly shooting, 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 shooting. So your post players, your guards, it doesn't matter. Position doesn't matter. You're not, they're not working on their post moves. Everybody's just shooting. I mean, I would definitely like to see more of that.
2: Who doesn't? And this is the WNBA's all time assist leader, by the way. It's still. <laughs> well, I just think it makes shooting. people
6: more versatile. I mean, just real quick, something that Gal said, it's interesting. It's like, so as women, like we grow, like, I don't know, earlier, I guess. We have our spurts yeah. earlier, generally speaking. Like, guys, it takes you guys time mm-hmm. sometimes. So, some like. So go, go back and look at your like seventh <laughs> really grade. Though, right? Last like, photos, guys still right. grow when they're right. like in college. Yeah. I like hit my, my ceiling <laughs> like my freshman year of high school. And it's sad. for. I have so many friends that were like 5'9". I'm 5'9 now. They were 5'9 in fifth grade and they were post players. And then they just could never have a career. It's just they could never get it. I don't know, it's made me think of that. It's a very interesting point.
2: Try to get this question at the buzzer. Are we seeing more experimentation with coaching and game plans? Thinking about Nick Nurse and his and one defense in the finals last year. Do you think the NBA is more receptive to
0: experimenting? Oh, I think uh, you're trying to throw people off. I mean, and, and right now we're ball dominant. You know, the best player from this team, that team, that team has it all the time. So if we can create some indecision or to force him into another help defender a little bit easier, I think, uh, I think it's real positive. I see. I, I think one of the hallmarks of the Spurs is you
2: guys have been so adaptable. If you look back at your different championships, different styles each time, um, again, is this a case of the league? Emulating and catching up with you guys and being as willing, willing to experiment?
5: No. Our coaches in our league and in the WNBA are the best coaches in the world, and they're going to figure out what they can do to maximize their players to be as good as they can. And, and uh, with matchups being such an impactful aspect of the game right now and taking advantages of the matchups, um, you have to be creative, um, especially now as the floors become more spaced.
2: All right. 24 seconds. I think that's a good way to to count down here for our our, our final shot. I really want to thank all of our guests, our panelists, once again, and thank you for coming out. I, I really appreciate it and learned a lot from you guys, and I hope you did as well. Thank you so much.
0: This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.